It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 25th, 2013. Almost tripped over my words there. Yeah, looking at the show notes here. all into one program. Isn't this supposed to be a short week? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's, It's about discernment. It's about God's Word in context. It's about testing to see if Popular celebrity pastors are actually teaching us the truth. Uh, There's a lot of celebrity pastors now. Uh, This is different, though, than being a public figure, and we'll actually get to that today. Um, There's a lot of problems when we got celebrity pastors running around, and that is, is that for the most part, they get a pass on stuff that they shouldn't be getting a pass on. Why? Well, because they're celebrities. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. They're kind of like the Untouchables. You, you, know, you remember that movie, The Untouchables? I think that's a good way to describe celebrity pastors. They're the Untouchables. You cannot critique them. You cannot dare challenge them. You cannot ask them tough questions because they are celebrity pastors. They are the Untouchables. And like I said, we'll talk about that today. In fact, we've got so much to do today. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> here, here, collect myself. Take a Take a deep cleansing breath. Hang on a second here. Okay, exhale. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, why did I pay, why did I do so much for today's episode? Um okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode and we'll just get right to it. We're going to we're going to ease in today's uh program with a William Tapley 30 Eagle of the Apocalypse update. Why? Because ay ay ay, just sometimes I think William Tapley provides just that weird, off-kilter little bit of um, yeah, humorous <laughs> side notes that uh, at least you know make it so we don't completely go crazy and bang our, bang our heads against a wall. We'll do. We'll take a look at that. Um, we have uh, we, there. There's news regarding. Uh, the Janet Mefford program, and uh, you know, you know, now apparently things have polarized into two camps. You know, those you know who support Mefford, and those who claim, "Aha, Mefford was up to no good. She was uh, part of some conspiracy to do gotcha." Um, no, she wasn't. Um, we'll we'll talk about that. So we'll we'll bring you up to speed on some of the latest um, where we are right now. You know, because this is still a developing story, and and there's people who are uh, making um, predictions as to how this thing is going to finally resolve. I think that's a, a good way of putting it. And so we'll bring you up to speed as to where we are at as of the time that I'm recording the program. Of course, th- there could be new uh, information added after uh, this program. There's going to be. You know, it's just a matter of will it be today, tomorrow, next week? Who knows? So uh, we'll bring you up to speed on that. And uh, what I think is fascinating is that uh, Carl Truman has weighed in on this. And very thankful that he has. Carl Truman is not somebody who's known to be um, somebody who pulls punches. And um, the guy is just top, top, top notch. 
and uh, he his insight into what's going on regarding the Mefford Driscoll controversy, I think, is just well, it's right up there as like the right thing to be saying in the right time, the right questions to be asking at the right time regarding this, and uh, and then we also so we got William Tapley, we got Janet Medford, yes, and you know just kind of taking uh, and the Mefford pieces. There's like there's a lot of moving pieces. So we and then we've got um, another. Um, Secrets of the Bible revealed. It's, I, I really need to collect these all and call it "Secrets of the Bible Debunked." It's just ridiculous. And um, kind of the last segment we'll do for episode two, and then of course we won't do anything until next week because uh, I'm, I'm taking Thanksgiving off. I'm looking forward to uh, <clears throat> gaining some weight during the Turkey Day festivities here in the United States. I don't really want to gain weight, but that's generally what happens. I'm not too worried about it, though, because, you know, I've got a good exercise routine now. Today was a brutal workout. Um, and, oh boy. Anyway, that's that's a whole other story. But, you know, I'm, I'm confident that, you know, I consistently put in this the right amount of exercise that, you know, just enjoying Thanksgiving is going to be nice for me uh, for a change to, you know, rather than thinking, oh, if I, should I eat that? No, I'm just going to go ahead and eat it and just say, all right, there's, uh, there's another eight miles I got to walk. <laughs> You know, that's, I think, the right way to do it. Um, so we've, like I said, we've got a Third Eagle uh, Apocalypse update. We've got uh, Mark Driscoll, Janet Mefford update. We've got a update on the history of the uh, secrets of the Bible debunked or revealed. And then in hour number two, we have a Troy Grambling sermon that we're going to be listening to that I think uh, is as uh, bang your head against the brick wall bad as the Adam Hushka sermon that we heard last week. We're going to be hearing about the importance of time management. <sighs> yeah, it, it's as if, I don't know what it is with these secret-driven guys. It's like, you know, they, you know, do the, are they not aware that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, you know, that kind of stuff. Not, the, the, the fruit of the spirit, spirit is not good time management, that you don't multitask, that you have hot sex, um, that, uh, that, you know, you have, you, you're purpose driven. Those are not the fruit of the spirit. That's something completely different. That, the, I mean, the, that list, the, the second that list doesn't even come close to anything that describes Christian sanctification. Now it could be something that maybe is a benefit or, you know, uh, you know, something that comes about as a result of Christian sanctification, but that's not Christian sanctification. So <sighs> there, See, I, I, we've, we've now talked about what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I am tired just thinking about everything i got to get to, so I'm going to just get, get right to it, because if I don't get right to it, then we're not going to be able to get it done. So that's all there is to it. So with that, we'll dive into the program proper. Since we're starting off with a William Tapley update, here we go. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world 
right, that's right. It's the end of the world as we know it. That's our William Tapley, 30 of the Apocalypse, and co-prophet of the End Times update music. Now, William Tapley has, like within the past few days, posted a video of, um, well, himself basically being challenged. Uh, challenged to give his subscribers a, a, a positive message. Apparently, um, his webmaster believes and feels that... Um, that his messages have been slowly sinking into negativity. So here's William Tapley to explain the problem and to offer us a positive message from Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. A couple of days ago, my web manager complained... She said, your videos are getting too depressing. Well, I reminded her that the eagle in the apocalypse in Revelation 8.13 cries out, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. Getting getting negative, getting depressing, getting... um, It's time for us to go back into the Wayback Machine um, to a video posted by William Tapley on September 30th of 2010. Yes, we actually premiered it here at uh, Fighting for the Faith back in September, or I think we actually premiered it in October of 2010 because... Uh, 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. Yeah, so we, I think we premiered this on in early October of 2010. But let's see if William Tapley's message is getting negative or has been depressing and negative for quite a long time. See if you can remember this hit. Here we go. That's William Tapley on the Casio. He has mad Casio skills, in case you haven't figured it out. seem very positive to me. Doom and gloom coming soon. So his messages are getting negative. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> so prepare yourself for a positive message from the third eagle. But then I thought about it, and when Jesus prophesied, he included the positive as well as the negative. So I asked her, what would you suggest? And she sent me this following email about the Pope handing out rosaries at the Vatican. Pope- this is a positive message? Okay. Pope Francis on Sunday advised Catholics to take a special dose of spiritual medicine, offering some 20,000 
Boxes of Mercy, containing rosary beads to pilgrims in St. Peter's Square. I'm not feeling any better. I know. That. How is this positive exactly? So the Pope's handing out rosary beads and boxes that look like medicine boxes, and this is supposed to be a positive thing. Um, sounds apostate to me. I now want to suggest a medicine. What, you ask? The Pope is now a pharmacist? Francis said, shaking a box resembling a pack of tablets, after reciting the traditional Sunday Angelus prayer from a window overlooking the square. The instructions, provided in several languages, say, can be used once a day, but in case of emergency can be taken as much as the soul needs. The dose is the same for adults and children, it adds. The unusual medicine box was inspired by followers of Polish nun Mary Faustina Kowalska, who was made a saint in 2000 and is known as the Apostle of... Yet scripture describes anybody who is a penitent, a forgiven sinner, you know, one who's been brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, baptized, you know, has their sins washed away, that those are the saints. Yeah, yes, and this, this, is not, this is not a positive message for me. This, this is very disturbing. Divine mercy, according to the Italian news agency. Don't forget to take your medicine, because it is good for the heart, the soul, the whole life, the Pope said. So now, I want to show you this photograph of the Pope waving his box of medicine, which is the rosary, to the pilgrims gathered in St. Peter's Square. Pope Francis shows a rosary in a box designed to resemble a packet of pills during his traditional Sunday appearance from his studio overlooking St. Peter's Square. Yeah, don't you think that that may be poison pills? At the Vatican, Sunday, November 17th, 2013. Joking that he's like a pharmacist, Pope Francis is promoting prayer as medicine for the heart. Appearing on Sunday at his studio window, Francis held up a rosary in a box designed to resemble a packet of pills. Francis' down-to-earth way of speaking, in a style ordinary people can readily understand, apparently has helped draw huger-than-usual crowds to St. Peter's Square for the traditional weekly papal appearances. So the Pope hands out a tchotchke. How much do you think those cost? About 80,000 tourists and Romans packed the square on a warm Sunday day. Okay, so now that is the positive side of this program. Mm-hmm. So that's the positive side. He's now going to switch directions here. He's done being positive. Well, let's give him a little musical segue here. Doom and gloom very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. Seventh trump. Don't be dumb. It will be as in the days of Noah's flood. Rapture comes. Lot and Noah did not have to shed their blood. Don't be dumb. Rapture comes. Trim your wick or face the gun. Don't 
won't be dumb. Rapture comes, fill your lamps. There won't be oil for everyone. Yeah, not <laughs> definitely not positive. I I'd never known William Tapley to have a history of positive messages at all. I they're getting darker. So, okay, he's segueing now into the dark portion of this positive message on YouTube. So here we go. But now I do have to add just a little bit of the whoa, whoa, whoa. The rosary is not just medicine for your soul. It is a weapon that we will use against the Antichrist. Oh, man, really? <sighs> uh, the rosary is a weapon you're going to use against the Antichrist. <sighs> You're going to find out it ain't going to do nothing, you know. Oh, man. It is prefigured in the sword that Judith cuts off Holofernes' head with. It is prefigured in the 50-cubit-high scaffold that King Ahasuerus hangs Haman and his ten sons on. Haman and his ten sons prefigure the Antichrist and the ten kings of the Antichrist. The rosary is prefigured in the five smooth pebbles that David uses against Goliath. And remember, mm, first use of the rosary goes all the way back to David and Goliath. Who knew? Remember, that pebble embedded itself in Goliath's forehead. This is all prefigured back in Genesis 3.15, where the woman crushes the head of the serpent. Actually, that would be the seed of the woman. You might want to check your Bible there. So I am not discounting Pope Francis because he is promoting the rosary, which is wonderful. It helps all of us individually, especially in these end times. But it is also the weapon, the weapon which Jesus has chosen to defeat the Antichrist. Mm, no, uh, actually, Scripture makes it clear that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to die by the breath of Jesus' mouth, not the rosary. <sighs> oh, man. But since this program was suggested by my web manager, I do want to close on a positive note. Oh, good. I, I was afraid this was going to, I was, you know, going to be depressed after listening to this. She is doing a wonderful job, and I believe this weekend she will be posting... The last chapter of Daniel, chapter 10 slash 12, which again, just like all of the other chapters that I've posted so far, the vision chapters, they also indicate that Mary's rosary, that is 555, will defeat number 666, and that is Mr. Antichrist. That's right. Number 555 is going to beat 666 in the seventh. So uh, place your bets now. Um, oh, man. Okay, I I have got to move on. I think that speaks for itself. Uh, we got a Carl Truman uh, update to uh, kind of ease us into the Medford Driscoll controversy update. So here we go. From the Reformation 21 blog, Carl Truman headline reads, If top men take over who will ask the hard questions if top men take over who will ask the hard questions carl truman writes he says the controversy surrounding janet mefford's interview of mark driscoll is interesting for a variety of reasons there is one aspect of it which has yet to attract comment as far as i can tell 
that is the way it brings out another aspect of the celebrity culture, which has so corrupted the young, restless, and reformed movement. My interest here is not who was right or who was wrong. That will no doubt be fairly easy to establish, as the claims which Janet Mefford made should be empirically verifiable. By the way, there are bloggers out there who've taken the time to empirically investigate to see whether or not Mefford's claims of plagiarism can stand up to scrutiny. And wouldn't you know it, if you look at it empirically, um, you come to find out that, uh, yep, Mefford is is right, um, that uh, Driscoll uh, engaged in plagiarism. In fact, Mefford, who is a journalist and used to work uh, in the newspaper reporting business, uh, on her uh, Facebook wall over the weekend said this, my former newspaper boss just emailed me. He works on the plagiarism issue with the American Copy Editors Society. He listened to the interview and said that the group would agree with my assessment of plagiarism in the Driscoll case. Just thought you would all like to know. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> Mefford has some heavy hitters uh, in, the, in the world of journalism who are siding with her. Uh, including somebody who actually works with the American Copy Editors Society uh, regarding plagiarism. And, and uh, his professional opinion is is that uh, Mefford is right. Uh, Driscoll's book engages in plagiarism. Okay, Now, just so you know, um, there, are, there are people out there making, um, how do I say this, uh, predictions as to how this is going to go down. Uh, for instance, um, Wade Burleson on his blog he uh, he makes a prediction as to how this is going to go down uh, and what, what is eventually going to happen. And I'll put out his speculations out there so that you can kind of get where he where he thinks. This is a guy who, who by the way, from uh, Historia Ministries, he he actually is one of the guys who's, went, all right, well, let's take a look. Empir- you know, plagiarism is empirically shown. I and mean, it's not a subjective thing. It's an objective standard. And he went through and he actually compared Driscoll's book to uh, Dr. Peter Jones's books and said, yep, there's plagiarism here. That's what uh, Wade Burleson said. And uh, and here's what he thinks is going to happen. You know, here's his prediction as to how this is going to go down. Number one, at some point, Dr. Jones will be asked his opinion. Uh, he's already been asked that from what I understand. I haven't seen it yet. It's still forthcoming. So uh, Burleson says, being a man of integrity and character, but also not wanting to cause controversy, Dr. Jones will express his belief that Mark Driscoll did not intentionally plagiarize, but indeed uh, he did feel that his thoughts and concepts were not properly credited. So prediction number one by Wade Burleson of Historia Ministries is that uh, Dr. Jones is going to say, he feel that he feels that he was plagiarized, but it wasn't intentional, um, and and that that he's he agrees with the method that he wasn't properly cited or properly credited. Okay, prediction number two: a Tyndale House will issue an apology and take responsibility for not catching the mistake in the editing process and absolve Mark Driscoll of all responsibility. And indeed, a great deal of fault should lie at the doorstep of Tyndale since they are familiar with the scholarly process. And then Tyndale will promise that in the future editions, a correction will be made. So prediction number one, uh, that uh, yes, uh, Dr. Jones will say that uh, there was plagiarism, but he'll say that he didn't believe it was intentional. uh, Number two, 
Tyndale House will fall on the sword and take all the blame so that uh, Mark Driscoll can be absolved. And then number three, uh, the Christian world will do exactly what Mark Driscoll writes about, uh, writes against in his book and take sides by clinging to a camp that either belongs to Mark Driscoll or that belongs to Janet Medford rather than seeing the kingdom as bigger than both camps. Ironically, the plagiarism in Mark Driscoll's newest book uh, will wind up illustrating the theme of his book, God Must Have a Sense of Humor. So there, those, those are your predictions from Wade Burleson. Now, I, th- I think it's also important to note here that, um, and this is something that a lot of people are not aware of. I, I didn't even cover the story back in September, but in uh, September September 30th of 2013, Wenatchee the Hatchet, uh, the Wenatchee the Hatchet web blog, actually voiced concerns um, and posted evidence alleging plagiarism on the part of Driscoll in his book, Real Marriage. This is true. You can find this at wenatchethehatchet.blogspot.com. And, you know, you know, good luck on the spelling on that one. I mean, it, it's spelled the way it sounds. Wenatchethehatchet is all one word. And um, the claim is, is that Chapter 7, Part 2 of uh, of real marriage, this is Driscoll's book, um, is actually uh, plagiarizing concepts and ideas that were first put out by Dan Allender in his writing, uh, the book "The Wounded Heart." So, just just I'm putting that out there. So, this uh, uh, Janet Mefford is not the first person to allege plagiarism on the part of Driscoll. So. Yeah, again, you can find this at wenatchethehatchet.blogspot.com. It's the Monday, September 30th post of 2013. And the headline reads, Real Marriage, Chapter 7, Part 2, Comparing Grace Driscoll's Writing to Dan Allender's Writing from the Wounded Heart. So, you know, so it's not the first time that uh, somebody has, uh, you know, put out allegations of uh, of plagiarism on the part of Driscoll. Back to Carl Truman's piece um, in his take on this. Let me let me back this up. Let me back this up. I'll start again. The controversy surrounding Janet Mefford's interview of Mark Driscoll is interesting for a variety of reasons. There, there is one aspect of it that has yet to attract comment as far as I can tell, and that is the way it brings out another aspect of the celebrity culture which has so corrupted the young, restless, and reform movement. My interest here is not who was right or who was wrong. That will no doubt be fairly easy to establish as the claims which Janet Mefford made should be empirically verifiable. I would only comment that in my own interactions with Janet Mefford, I have always found her forthright but fair. I am concerned in this post only with what the reactions to the interview tell us about the culture of celebrity and the subculture that is evangelicalism. I have tried a number of times to make the point that being a celebrity is not the same as being a public figure. Anyone who acts in public is, to a greater or lesser degree, a public figure. Celebrity brings with it such matters as a culture of false intimacy with complete strangers and a charismatic authority rooted in the person, not in an institution. Thus, influence is often predicated on personality, not on the intrinsic merits of arguments, etc. The Mefford-Driscoll controversy points to another aspect of celebrity culture. Celebrities are routinely allowed to behave in ways which would not be tolerated in ordinary mortals. For example, being drunk on the job and hurling abuse at an employer would make uh, make one unemployable in the real world, but not for Charlie Sheen. 
A conviction for rape would be enough to have you characterized as a monster in the real world who had forfeited the right to sympathetic media exposure, but not for Mike Tyson or Roman Polanski. Just ask that champion of women's rights, Whoopi Goldberg. In short, normal rules do not apply to celebrities in the same way as they do to others. The same is true in the celebrity drome of the uh, evangelical subculture. Driscoll is a classic case in point. For example... He has claimed that God gives him explicit images of the sexual sins of other people. He has embraced prosperity teacher and denier of the Trinity, T.D. Jakes, as a brother. He has written an explicit book on sex. Most recently, he engaged in a cringe-inducing publicity stunt unworthy of a spoiled teenager. For most of us, any one of these things would have ended in church discipline and, in Jake's case, removal from office. Yet, in all of this, the fan base and those with a vested interest in capitalizing on his success grant him a free pass after a free pass after a free pass. So the fallout from the Janet Mefford show has been interesting, even as it has been entirely predictable. The fan base and those with a vested interest in Driscoll's reputation rally around their hero while excoriating Janet Mefford. In so doing, they ironically demonstrate why shows such as Mefford's can be so very important. If the conservative evangelical world continues to be increasingly dominated by one or two huge media-style organizations, the conversation will be corralled and controlled. The hard questions will not be asked. The leaders of such organizations and those over whom they choose to extend their patronage will not be held to account. If, in your quest to promote yourself, you ask to appear on a particular show, you should be tough enough to take whatever that show throws at you with equanimity. The intricate and risky dance between celebrities and media is part of the game you have chosen to play, indeed a larger, uh, large factor in what has made you famous and influential. Sometimes it works, sometimes it does not. In such circumstances, you should also accept that Janet Mefford's job is not to make you look good or to keep her comments within the acceptable bounds of evangelical correctness as defined by you or any other top man. Her job as a radio journalist is to ask the hard questions and hold you, me, or whomever she is addressing to account. But you can still sleep easy at night knowing this important truth. Blessed are the celebrities, for they will be rigorously held to a much lower standard of behavior than the rest of us. Yep. Absolutely true. Uh, Carl Truman just knocks it out of the park. I think he's absolutely right. Now, in fairness, I think this is important to uh, point out. Driscoll's camp and Tyndall House have made the claim and provided what they th think is evidence that Driscoll did not indeed hang up on Janet Mefford. So in you know in fairness to Driscoll and to Tyndall House, I'm going to play for you that audio. Now, I'm also going to um, play for you the audio that Mefford has supplied. So this is audio recorded on two different uh, ends of the conversation, if you would. And uh, here's uh, the Driscoll portion of it. Now, when Driscoll, when we get to the point where Driscoll disappears, um, he disappears for nine whole seconds. Nine whole seconds. That, I think, is important. But uh, here we go. Here's the uh, audio provided by the Driscoll camp to prove that Driscoll did not hang up. Here we go. Well, I'm not teaching. I tend to interview people and take calls, but a uh, fair point that, you know, you're certainly entitled to think that. I think 
you are on the right track as far as saying we need to do something about this culture, and I think that you are right in saying something's wrong. But I think that it's important when you're getting those ideas out that you do it in an upstanding way. And I, I really hope that you are going to fix this because I think it's the right thing to do, and I think it would be a good witness for everybody who's going to read and uh, you know look at the ideas in your book. Here's the nine seconds. All right. I think we've lost him. That is Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And I guess uh, he has opted out of the no, interview. I'm, I'm still here. I'm just listening for to the him. Janet Mefford show, and we'll be coming back. Janet, if you're still there, he's All right, so that's the audio provided by the Driscoll camp that they say proves that Driscoll didn't hang up. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so he didn't hang up. So what happened? Was uh, was Janet Mefford engaging in gotcha journalism and basically stacking the deck against uh, Driscoll? No, not at all. Um, it, basically, what you got to understand is is that you know the their end of the line went dead. The, their end of the conversation went dead as a result of it. She assumed that he had hung up, and she went forward. Now, Mefford's camp uh, and uh, the folks over at uh, at uh, Salem Broadcasting, in fact, the, uh, Bobby Belt, the producer of Janet Mefford's show, provided the raw audio from their version, you know, so that you know you can compare notes. And here's what they've said regarding this. Here's the link to the raw recorded Salem Radio Network audio file of Janet Mefford's November 21st, 2013 interview with Pastor Mark Driscoll, author of A Call to Resurgence. It was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern on November 21st as a mono MP3 file for playback on the air at 3 p.m. Eastern. It was not recorded as a multi-track session, so there would have been no way to just pull out Driscoll's voice. Now, this is important. So basically, the way they recorded it is everything got dumped into one file in in, a, in not in mono, not in stereo. This is not a, a multi-track, uh, you know, recording. So. There's no way for them to edit out Driscoll's voice. Janet was clearly conducting the interview, and upon completion of her thoughts, Mark Driscoll failed to respond for two seconds, so Janet closed the segment. Uh, you know, the segment. No audio came through the board after Janet's words in your book. It is interesting that even on Driscoll's own audio recording, he was silent for nine seconds. The second voice on the Driscoll audio was Justin Dean, Driscoll's assistant, who patched through the original call. Did Justin hit the mute button on his end, preventing Janet from hearing Mark for the final seconds of the segment? I do not know. I can only state what occurred on our end. I specifically left the volume up on the phone line until Janet said, and we'll be coming back. The phone call then disconnected from Driscoll's end before the segment was completed. For the record, Janet did not hang up on Mark Driscoll, nor did we cut the interview short. We, we also edited nothing for the final playback. Janet is a Christian and a journalist, and she would never doctor an interview or betray her Christian testimony or journalistic ethics. So that's what uh, the folks there at Salem are basically saying. And uh, so let's take a listen to uh, their raw audio that they provided. Uh, and you can compare notes and you can see what's going on here. So, you know, something happened. Uh, you know, uh, two different recordings on both ends, but uh, the folks there at uh, Salem, there's no way that they could have uh, dumped Driscoll's voice. They were not engaging in chicanery. So listen in. 
Well, I'm not teaching. I tend to interview people and take calls, but a uh, fair point that, you know, you're certainly entitled to think that. I think you are on the right track as far as saying we need to do something about this culture. And I think that you are right in saying something's wrong. But I think that it's important when you're getting those ideas out that you do it in an upstanding way. And I, I really hope that you, you are going to fix this because I think it's the right thing to do. And I think it would be a good witness for everybody who's going to read and, uh, you know, look at the ideas in your book. All right. I think we've lost him. That is Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And I guess uh, he has opted out of the interview at this point. You're listening to The Janet Mefford Show, and we'll be coming back. Now, so you see what's going on here. Now, here's the funny thing. You know, since the folks in Driscoll's camp are basically claiming, oh, well, you know, there's something, you know, that we didn't hang up. They hung up on us. Um Yet they heard that, you know, if you listen to their audio, their audio, it's clear that they were aware that Janet was, you know, actually not correctly understanding the silence. Um, You know what Driscoll could have easily done? It's called pick up the phone and call back. He could have easily done that. And he didn't. He could have called back and said, hey, oh, sorry, you know, I, I didn't hang up on you. Let's continue the interview. He didn't do that. So I think that's an important uh, piece of the story. So that's where the whole thing sits right now, okay? So, you know, there's a lot of different con- you know, different facets of this particular controversy, and it's important not to bundle them all together into one thing. Janet was not up to no good. Yes, she asked some really tough questions, and she was tenacious and bold in how she did it. Um, I don't think she did anything wrong. Could she handle herself better? Sure. Okay, Sure. But she didn't do anything wrong, okay? And we still haven't heard, by the way, still haven't heard from Tyndale House uh, regarding the 14 pages of um, of material that empirically can be demonstrated to have its origin not in the mind of Mark Driscoll but in the mind of Dr. Peter Jones. Um, we haven't heard from them yet uh, uh, about this. Now, one of the things, I, in fact, I, I took the time to uh, comment on uh, a, uh, one of the news, the re- religious news services. Jonathan Merritt covered the story, and I made a, I left a comment there regarding this and pointed this out, that um, the fact that Tyndale House has not yet issued a statement regarding whether or not the 14 pages are plagiarized whether they were not correctly or incorrectly cited, um, whether or not if if they were if the, if it was incorrectly cited, who's responsible or anything, they haven't taken it. They haven't actually issued a formal statement yet, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that it is not that simple. And what I mean is this: is that if there were if the if Janet Mefford's allegations were completely baseless, if they were completely unfounded, if she was just completely off of her rocker in some crazy, um, you know, what, what, a discernment diva type, right? That's the disparaging term used nowadays. Apparently a woman can't challenge a man. That, which by the way is complete malarkey. Just want to let you all know that. Um, if, um, if Janet Mefford's allegations were completely baseless and not grounded in reality and, and she was off a rocker and was completely being unfair, Tyndale House would have already issued a statement and dismissed the whole thing. They would have already done it. 
Okay, this all went down on the 21st of November. Today's the 25th of November. The fact that they have not issued a statement as of yet actually shows that Mefford's allegations have merit to them. Because if they didn't, they would have already issued a statement and said, "Ah, she's just being nuts." Here, you know, it, this is there's not there's nothing there, but they can't because they know that it wasn't correctly cited. And anybody who objectively, empirically looks at this again, plagiarism is not a subjective standard; it's an objective standard. Anybody who uh, just empirically takes a look at the uh, at the at the the story, reads Driscoll's book, reads Peter Jones's two books on the topic, will see that uh, there's plagiarism that took place in the classic sense of the word. This is why Tyndall House has not yet weighed in on this because they know they've got a problem and they've got to find a way to spin this and control the damage. That's why they're slow in responding. Just want to let you all know that. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Got an update regarding the uh, secrets of the Bible revealed, actually debunked. Yeah, it's a short segment. I went really long. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> summoned here to answer for your crimes against the church. Hold on. What crimes? All I know is that an hour ago I was sound asleep in my own bed, minding my own business, and then you people broke into my house, threw a black bag over my head, and then forcibly dragged me to this horrible place. And you, <laughs> you, you have the audacity to tell me that I've committed a crime. Silence! We will not tolerate insolence from the mouth of the guilty. Let the trial begin. Oh, pyrotechnics. <laughs> nice touch. Sitting in James McDonald's place today as High Chancellor Mark Triscoll. Thank you, Bailiff. 
Please read the charges. Henry Wigan, you have been charged with high treason against Harvest Bible Chapel for having an unauthorized opinion. You've got to be kidding me. Is it true that on your blog that you accused James McDonald of being financially irresponsible? Of course. Plunging the church into $65 million of debt Silence! Is we have already heard your opinion it is for this slanderous accusation that you have been brought here before us. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. Oh, is it? We shall now vote the liberty of your so-called opinion. All of those in favor of Mr. Wiggins' opinion being null and void, say aye. Well, there you have it. Your opinion is not valid. That's absurd! You can't simply vote away facts because you disagree with them. In the church, it is the elder board that has the ultimate authority to decide what is truth and what is not. When we have consensus, we speak for God. It is for precisely this heretical worldview held by the elder board that I created my blog in the first place. Church matters are not to be tried in the court of public opinion. Publicizing viewpoints rejected by the elder majority for any reason is satanic to the core and must be dealt with very directly, which is why you are here. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is if the elder board were to vote on what color the sky is, then whatever the majority agrees on, be it purple, pink, or brown, would be reality, regardless of the fact that the sky is clearly blue. Yes! Were you dropped on your head as a child? That's beside the point. What you fail to realize is that the cult of the individual is coming to an end. We are the collective, you see. We must eradicate the poisonous ideology of individualism from the conscious minds of our church community if we are to fulfill the vision of our leader. <laughs> you know, that sounds an awful lot like fascism, if you ask me. Or anybody else for that matter. If that's what it takes... Then so be it. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. 
Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if, um, well, you've got one of those celebrity pastors who's rigorously held to a lower standard. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Now, just a warning, I went really long on that opening portion of the program. So it's going to seem like we're going to have like commercials back to back. I apologize. That is my fault. That's... (laughs) That's just the way the, today's program came apart. Just want to let you all know. So with that, we're going to move in, on to our next segment, and we'll move along. Here we go. That's right. That's REMs and uh, losing my religion. That's our update music for Secrets of the Bible debunked and revealed. Oh man, what I'm going to play for you here? It, it, literally. Oh man. Okay. When I brought the audio 
into the computer, and uh, you know, I, I bring it into, just so you know, it's kind of a technical thing here. When I have long pieces of audio, um, I bring it into GarageBand, the old version of it. The new version of GarageBand does not have these features. The new, I don't know what Apple is doing. They're breaking their software. It's, it's bizarre behavior on the part of Apple's part. But the uh, GarageBand 6.0.5 has the ability for me to uh, put chapter titles um, uh, on the uh, audio segments. And so there, for this, for that, it makes it easy for me to get to them so that I can play them, you know, here at Fighting for the Faith. And um, so the opening part, it says opening regarding the promised land. And then it has, you know, at the end of it, it says final parts regarding the promised land. In the middle here, this, this chapter, I named it the boneheaded parts. Because <laughs> this is ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Secrets of the Bible Revealed is the name of the program. They're going to reveal secrets, okay? That's what they're claiming to do. But if they're going to make an appeal to something that's clearly in the biblical text, that is not a secret, okay? If I told you, listen, I've got a, oh man, I got a secret of the Bible. You have, oh, you wow, you're, it's going to blow you away. Are you ready? Here's the secret. There is a biblical text that says that Jesus walked on water. And you, you <gasps> really? No way. <laughs> That's not a secret. <laughs> okay. Anything that you can actually flip a page in an analog Bible or um, you can scroll to in a digital version and read it in black and white is not a secret. And here's the other thing. Okay. Here's the other thing. When you just, for instance, if you read a historical narrative, okay, work with me here, and the historical narrative says the children of Israel traveled from this place to that place, okay, and all you do is read what the text says, you are not engaging in interpretation, (laughs) Okay, it's really that simple. Okay, no, but if you were to say, and when the children of Israel traveled from this place to that place, it's allegorically and symbolically uh, representing Mary's rosary, that is an interpretation. Okay, just so... This segment of Secrets of the Bible Revealed... Um, is again, I've named it the boneheaded parts because the words have no meaning here. The word secret has no meaning and the word interpretation has no meaning. And yet this is what is being passed off as super scholarly television regarding the Bible. Yeah. Listen in. But in the chapters of Exodus, the migration out of Egypt to the promised land is not an easy one. During the harsh journey, God enables Moses to perform miracles, to provide food, water, and shelter. Now that's a summary of what the historical narrative says in the book of Exodus, Uh uh-huh, and as well as the book of Numbers, correct? Although it seems that God has protected them from all harm, the Israelites doubt they are strong enough to capture the territory from the Canaanites. The story recounted in the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. Yes, the book of Numbers. Notice the story recounted in the fourth book of the Bible. That would be Numbers. You can read it in black and white. 
says that Moses sends a team of scouts to survey the promised land. Moses had been commissioned by God to send in 12 spies to see what the land was like and to be motivated to then take it over. But the end result is, is that 10 of those 12 spies say that it's impossible to take this land over, that those who live there are too menacing, too threatening, and that they didn't believe that God could give them that promised land. Okay, now, sounds like an accurate summary, right? They're just, um, what is this, Numbers 13 and 14, right? Seems pretty straightforward, but then you have these weird boneheaded statements that follow. According to the traditional interpretation of the exodus from Egypt, God forced his chosen people to wander the desert for 40 years. Uh, According to the traditional interpretation. No. According to the biblical text, sans interpretation, without interpretation. Hi-yi-yi. Okay, you have your Bible. Okay, in fact, I've got to get over to a screen here so that I could properly open this up. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the book of Numbers. And uh, specifically, let's take a look at Numbers. I I, I think I want 14 for this interpretation. (laughs) No, actually, I want 13. We're in 13, okay? So we want Numbers 13, okay? Numbers chapter 13, let me read the entire chapter. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, everyone chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men whom were heads of the people of Israel. And then then it goes on to name who went. Okay, so we got all the names in y'all. You got uh, Joshua, uh, the son of Nun. Uh, you got Caleb also. Those are the two good guys. Now, number seven, uh, 13, verse 17 then says this. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negeb, go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the ripe of the first ripe grapes. So they went out and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Libo Hamath. They went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. 
But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are from the Nephilim, and we seemed... To, our, to ourselves like grasshoppers, so, so we seem to them. Now chapter 14. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Notice who has faith and who doesn't. Okay. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to the stone, uh, said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting of the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, have you killed these uh, this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them and has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation." Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which... Uh, in which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So there you go. Okay? So let me continue with the curse, though. The Lord spoke to Moses, this is uh, verse 26 of chapter 14, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, 
What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old up and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days. Uh, Forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity. Forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there you go. Now, I did not interpret it at all. It's a historical text. It's a narrative text. I don't need to interpret it. Why God punished them, how long he punished them, is all right there. No interpretation is needed, and... This is not a secret. The reason it's not a secret is because it's there in black and white. Now, let me back up the audio a little bit and listen into what Secrets of the Bible Revealed says regarding this text. Too threatening, and that they didn't believe that God could give them that promised land. According to the traditional interpretation of the Exodus from Egypt. No, no, no. According to the biblical text itself, uh, Numbers 13 and 14, which needs no interpretation. It's, you, you can understand, uh, any kid could get this. Uh, literally, a six-year-old could understand what happened here and why it happened. No interpretation is needed. But the end result is, is that 10 of those 12 spies say that it's impossible to take this land over. That those who live there are too menacing too threatening, and that they didn't believe that God could give them that promised land. According to the traditional interpretation of the... Now, listen listen to this very carefully. He says, according to the traditional interpretation, listen to what the, quote, traditional interpretation of this text says. ...of the exodus from Egypt. God forced his chosen people to wander the desert for 40 years as a test of their faith. Whoa! Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Did the text in Numbers 13 or Numbers 14 say anything about you're going to now wander the desert in the wilderness for 40 years as a, quote, test of your faith? Nope. Nope, nowhere. Doesn't say that in, in, in Numbers 13. Doesn't say it in Numbers 14. So how who who's these people who have this historical uh, traditional interpretation? I don't know any. I mean, somebody who has failed a basic reading comprehension uh, course. But now listen. So so well, the, according to the traditional interpretation, it's this. Now watch what they do. I'll back this up just a little bit so you can kind of see the game they're playing. Too threatening, and that they didn't believe that God could give them that promised land. According to the traditional interpretation of the Exodus from Egypt, God forced his chosen people to wander the desert for 40 years as a test of their faith. But some biblical scholars offer a different interpretation. Okay, but some biblical scholars offer a different interpretation. By the way, what I read, I I didn't offer an interpretation. I just read the text. The text 
is a historical narrative. It speaks for itself. So some biblical scholars offer a different interpretation. Now, the interpretation that you're going to hear is what the text says. So the word interpretation doesn't have any real meaning in secrets of the Bible revealed. That the 40 years was actually a death sentence imposed by God. A punishment for those who doubted him. The Israelites aren't wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they got lost. They're wandering around in the wilderness as a punishment from God for not having the faith to take the promised land when they had the opportunity. Now, this guy, all he's doing is telling us what the text says. He's not interpreting it. That generation has to be purged. It has to be eliminated so a strong, new, young generation of believers and fighters can take over. Now, that's an interpretation because the text doesn't say anything so that a young, new generation of fighters can take over. That's not, that's, that, that part, that was an interpretation and it's not consistent with what the narrative says. That's quite a shocking moment. Was the Israelites' 40-year exile in the wilderness really God's way of ensuring that only their children would enter the so-called promised land? Now, listen to the way they build this now. Or is there an even greater secret behind this epic story? So that was a secret. So... Oh, what is this? Uh, what? Let me play this again so you can kind of get the idea here. So apparently that was a secret that they revealed, that the reason why the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness was, well, are you ready? It was a punishment from God. <gasps> Who knew? Okay, but so that's apparently the secret that they're revealing, and now there's greater secrets. Listen. Really God's way of ensuring that only their children would enter the so-called promised land. Or is there an even greater secret behind this epic story? Mm, a greater secret than that. I mean, who? Whoa, whoa, what's the greater secret? Listen. One that may reveal that the Exodus never happened at all. Mm-hmm. See, that's the agenda. Take away the Jews' claim to Canaan. That's the agenda. And all of it's basically done via this bizarre game of bad arguments changing the meanings of words. The word secret doesn't mean anything now. The word interpretation doesn't mean anything now. It is just absolutely bizarre what they're doing here because, as I pointed out in our last segment, what's really going on here is they're trying to promote a political ideology. That's the idea. And biblical Christianity gets in the way of that. So they got it they gotta find a way to undermine the authority of scripture. And they're doing it by means of well, revealing secrets that aren't secrets, talking about interpretations that aren't interpretations, so that they can get to the big secret they want to reveal that maybe the maybe the Exodus never took place. Mm-hmm. As the old saying goes, fire beware. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. You can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, uh, Troy Grambling sermon review about the importance of time management. You, know, you don't want to go against God and not have a day planner, you know. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Going back down to potential church. I mean, those poor folks, I mean, they keep going to a church that only is a church in potential. You know, we, we keep checking in to see if they've upped their game and are finally going to be a real church. But I wouldn't cross your fingers. Here we go. And, uh, well, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon uh, comes to us via Potential Church. Potential. They're a multi-site out of Florida. I think Cooper City, to be exact. Um, The name of the sermon we're going to be listening to is entitled, From the Heart, 
That's the name of the sermon series, and this is the third sermon in the series preached by Troy Grambling. Now, I think this, this is a kissing cousin to the sermon we heard last week from Adam Hushka about all oh, the dangers of multitasking, you know. That could really cause you to run afoul of God's will, you know. This one is, well, I'm convinced that Troy Grambling's Bible study method includes a computer program searching for keywords. The keywords he were looking for, <laughs> that's bad grammar, uh, the keywords he be looking for, <laughs> that's even worse, were <laughs> the words that have to do with time and something to do with minutes and things like that and kind of missed the whole point of all of this and yeah i don't even know what to tell you anymore let me <clears throat> kill the music and without any further ado here is troy grambling preaching from the stage at potential church or not a church yet they're just a church in potentia uh talking about time management of or something or other along those lines here we go i got a question for you we're not in a series first of all before we get started a little different for us just kind of sharing some things in our heart as we get ready to get ready for christmas but here's my question how many of you have ever ran out of gas raise your hand if you've ever now oh, oh. Uh, i have i have i'm not talking about you know your girl, you and your girlfriend ran out of gas in the car accidentally. I'm talking about you ran out of gas. How many of you raise your hand again? Raise it high. You ran out of gas at one time in your life. Hold it. Keep it up there. Don't be in such a hurry. All right. Come and see here. You ran out of gas. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? You know, I mean, and you know, back when I was in college and I, I'm, you know, gas, that seemed like a detail to me. So it happened quite often, but it was in the day before cell phones. Remember, I mean, if you ran out of gas, you had to walk to get gas or you had to walk up to somebody's house, knock on their door and say, uh, can I use your phone? I ran out of gas. And then you had to endure them looking at you like, are you stupid or what? Right? I mean, it's a terrible feeling. And, and before you run out of gas, I mean, you're just focused on the gas gauge, aren't you? And some of us would even then talk to our cars. Uh, anybody got a name for your car? It's like, come on, Betsy, come on. And you can get me there. You can, I know you can, I promise it'll never happen again. You get me there, I'll get you some premium. <laughs> a little dessert. Uh, it's, it's, and your car doesn't run as well when it's out of gas or close to being out of gas. And they tell us that, you know, the faster you go, the quicker you burn your fuel. And yet, if you're about out of gas, you go as fast as you can. You're like, I got to get home. I got to get home. And um, it'll all be okay. It's, that's a horrible experience to be out of gas. And occasionally when I was in college, my mom or maybe even my dad would take my car unknowingly to me and they would fill it up. And I'd get in my car and I'd look at the gas gauge and it would say F, full. Man, that's an awesome feeling, isn't it? To get in your car and know you have a full tank of gas I mean, you can go wherever you want to go. You can take a side journey. I mean, you're, you're on full. Even today, if I get in my car and it's like on full, I'm just like, yeah, baby. That's right. I have arrived. I have a full tank of gas. Now, I know that some of us are the kind of people that our car has never even seen a quarter tank. 
Because if it gets to a half a tank, you'd start to break out in the sweat and you get all nervous. You got any of those kind of folks? Your car has never even seen a quarter tank gas. I mean, full half a tank, you are filling that sucker up. Well, you know, I, I've discovered that in life, it's kind of the same way. Is that we either do life full, you know, or we do life empty. And when you do life empty, it's... Now notice uh, he's doing this sermon empty. And what I mean by empty is, well, so far, not based on a biblical text. This is a bad sign. A sermon should begin with a biblical text. If you're going to be exegeting God's Word and preaching and teaching God's Word, you, you can't do that without a biblical text. So what is he doing? Well, <clears throat> he's creating... Uh, he's laying out what a problem is so that he can find a biblical solution. The problem is, is that the Bible is not an answer book. It's not like, you know, it's it's indexed, you know, like a dictionary, and you can go look up, you know, problems. It's like, okay, over here, I, I've, I'm, I have depression, so look in the D's in the Bible and see what it says regarding how to fix depression. I'm suffering from procrastination. Go over to the P section. Okay, uh, uh, here we go, procrastination, and you can figure out how to, you know, it, it's not like that. So we got a problem here. The job of a pastor is to preach the word, but he's not doing it. Kind of like, you know, driving on an empty tank of gas. You're, you're focused on yourself. You're not as, you, you don't produce as well as you normally would. I, I, I kind of wrote some of the things down that, that when I'm exhausted, when I'm overwhelmed, I tend to work faster trying to catch up. I, I, I know I'm not doing my best work. There's always something else to do. I just feel a little sense of overwhelmed. And when I'm doing, as opposed to when I'm doing life full, and there seems to be, and again, I just wrote down in my, in my journal or in my notes that I feel rested, I feel focused, I feel thankful. Man, I, I'm able to think about other people. I have that sense of winning, that sense of, you know, anything could happen. Now, in your program there, I think, or in your outline, if you pull that out, I kind of, right, Let's see, how's this work? I put a, a little gauge. It's not a very good gauge, but I put a gauge there. You got empty, you got full, and then in the middle you have a half a tank. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to, where are you at right now? I mean, are you here? And I mean, you are on fumes. I mean, you just barely had the energy to make it here. You are dreading Monday. You, dealing with life or school or kids is overwhelming you. Maybe you're here and you're more towards full. I mean, you got a sense of passion. You got a sense of energy. You got a sense of excitement. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle or maybe you're quarter tank. Just take a moment and, and put yourself on that gauge. Where are you at today? Because I, I want to ask us, I guess, a few questions is as we get started. And I really want to encourage you to participate. You don't have to. But if you don't want to do life on E, if you don't want to do life exhausted, if you don't want to do life overwhelmed, then it's going to take some intentionality on your part. You okay, now, do you need a crucified and risen Savior for this? You don't want to live your life on E, on fumes. Well, then you've got to live your life with some intentionality. Is this Christian sanctification? Is this what it means to be holy and set apart and sanctified and bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Is that what this is? No, not at all. The reality is, is that, well, here's the advice. Number one, you need to live with some intentionality. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And, and, um, well, 
you don't need a crucified and risen savior for this. You can get this kind of advice from somebody at a, you know, teaching a Franklin Covey time management course, couldn't you? I know I've heard something similar from them, and they're run by uh, a guy who's a Mormon. Let's continue. You can't just listen and change your life. You have to engage. And so I, I want to encourage you to write some of these things down as we talk, maybe even like take it home as homework. And, and I just want to really get you to think a little bit today as we begin. Here, here's the first question I put in your outline. And it's what we've been talking about was what does full feel like in your life? And what does empty feel like? I, I noticed as I thought about this for myself, when I'm doing life on full, I dream more. I think about what the future holds for me or my family or, or my kids or, or, or church or, or even our country. When I'm doing life on full, I read more. I hang with people more because people take up a lot of energy, don't they? And I just enjoy when I'm full. I enjoy. Being- Who's he preaching about? Is he preaching about Jesus? No. Is he preaching about you know, one of the apostles? No. How about one of the prophets? No. Moses? No. Any of the guys in jet? Nope. He's Troy Gramling's preaching about Troy Gramling, which is another problem. It's a big problem. Around people, I eat right. I exercise. And then I thought about what is life like when I'm an empty? You know, when I'm just living on fumes. I tend to withdraw because relationships take energy. I watch a lot more TV because it doesn't take much energy to watch TV, does it? Just kind of sit there. <laughs> you know, an hour after hours go by. I, I tend to be more selfish when I'm doing life on eat. Like, I just don't have the energy to think about anybody else. I'm just like focused on that gauge, just looking at my life. I'm hurried when I'm on empty. It's like I'm hurried when I'm on E in my car. I got to get there. I got to get there. I tend to do life. And, I, and I'm, when I'm out doing life on E, I'm, I'm always late, you know, I'm just hurried. I'm rushing around wherever I go. It just seems I'm always just a little bit behind. Now, as you, you know, filled those questions out for yourself, the next question is actually a pretty natural question is what refuels you? I mean, what re-energizes you? What impassions you? I mean, as you think about it, again, I'll just share with you some of my journey. For me, travel, not traveling for work, but traveling to see new things or traveling to learn new things. Uh, that energizes me or refuels me learning things. Like I love to hang out with somebody that is involved in something I don't know very much. Does the Bible anywhere tell you, hey, if you you, you want to have, you know, you want to have a fuller life, you want to feel full and not just stressed out and on fumes, travel some more and visit places so that you can learn some stuff. No, none of this is taught in the Bible so far. About and just asking a ton of questions. Hanging with my family refuels me unhurried. Now, hanging with my family in a hurry, that's not refueling, that's draining. Oh, we got to hurry, get everybody in the car. What are you doing? Fight all the way, you know, all that. No, 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 unhurried. And if I can do life with my family or hang with my family unhurried, it really doesn't matter where, whether it's the movie or whether it's the mall, whether it's church or whether it's home. Now, how about for you? What refuels you? What re-energizes you? What are some things that, that cause you to move from E to F. And then my next question that I put in your outline is, why don't you do that more often? 
Whatever that is, why don't you do that more often? And, and I think the answer to that question that maybe many of us would write down is, well, I don't have the time or I don't have the money. I mean, try, I'd love to do this, but I just don't have the time to do that. Do you see my list, my to-do list? Do you see all the things that I've got to get done? Or do you realize how much money it takes to participate in the hobby that actually refuels me? Here's another question for you is, do you have a daily schedule? And when you look up here behind me, I've got a calendar for a month and I've got a calendar for a day. Do you have a daily schedule? Do you know what you're going to do come Monday at 8 a.m.? Do you know what you're going to be doing on Tuesday at 3.30 p.m.? Now, immediately since this is being asked in a church, my question is, uh uh-oh, well, if the answer is no, is God mad at me? Am I sinning? I mean, do you have a daily schedule? How many of you have like a calendar app on your phone? Raise your hand. How about how many of you have a to-do list on your phone? Raise your hand. How many of you have like more than one calendar? You have more than one app. And if you're not careful, you'll spend hours finding just the right to-do list. Only to download it and never look at it again. You know, it's like, I know if I could just get the right one and you spend and you get it and you put everything into it and you've got the, you know, whether it's urgent or it's non-urgent or it's a one or it's a four, but then you, then you never look at it again. And then you got all these stinking reminders for the last three months popping up on your phone. You can't even see the number that you're trying to call. Do, do you have a daily schedule? And the next question is simply, well, how's that going for you? I mean, how's your daily schedule going? I, I did some research this week as I was thinking about this, and I was amazed at the num- amount of information online about the way people live their life and people's daily schedules. For example, did you know that Winston Churchill, the incredible uh, political leader, was he, when he, w- he would awake like at 8 in the morning and he would work in bed till like noon. He did all his work in bed in the morning. He didn't even get out of bed. You know, just leave his English nightshirt on and do what needs to be done. Leonardo da Vinci would, he would take two-hour naps because he thought to sleep for like six or eight hours in a row was just a waste of time. So he would work till he got tired, then sleep for two hours, then work till he got tired, and then sleep for two hours, and then work until he got tired, and then he would sleep for two hours. I went to a, a site called, I think it was like Daily Routines, and uh, Mr. Rogers, you know who he is, right? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, beautiful day in the neighborhood. Could you be mine or won't you be mine? Whatever it is. He, he would get up at 530 every morning and he would read and he'd spend time in prayer. By 645, he'd have his sweater on and his tennis shoes. And Harper's Bazaar, I, I, they have a website and I was amazed. They had all I just. So again, I asked the question, am I sinning if I don't get up that early? A list of different fashion designers and what their daily schedule was. And it was amazing. Some of them got up very early and would go straight to work. Some of them got up early and did other things and eventually would get to work. Some of them worked throughout the night and would sleep into late hours in the day. They all had daily, uh, different daily schedules. And basically what all of these people were doing is that they were on a journey to discover what schedule worked best for them to figure out how they needed to organize their day so that they could be effective at what they were called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, which of the apostles used a day planner? Um, can you point me to the passages that gives me the schedule, the daily schedule of like one of the prophets so that I can follow that? What was Jesus's daily schedule like? Is that written for us so that we can follow it? You understand why I'm asking these questions, right? 
because you don't need a crucified and risen Savior for any of this. This is just advice regarding time management, not a biblical teaching regarding true Christian sanctification. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about this. No, it does. Well, okay. Can't wait to see it. How much do you want to bet none of the verses are in context and all of them are going to be ripped from context and made to look like they support what he's saying rather than actually supporting it? I mean, it may sound, this doesn't sound real romantic or real spiritual, and yet the Scripture has a lot to say. Look at what it says in Psalm 90, verse 12. It's, he says, teach us, talking to God, teach us to, what are those next three words? Number our days. Say that. Okay, now this is, he's, in Psalm 90, verse 12, he's quoting it from the voice, which is the emergent church's, quote, translation, unquote, which means it's not a translation. Psalm 90.12, teach us to number our days so that we may truly live and achieve wisdom from the voice. Um, that's as bad, if not worse, than uh, the message paraphrase. You don't want to be teaching from the voice if you want to accurately understand what Scripture teaches. So let's take a look at Psalm 90, and we'll apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context to see if the context is teaching what Troy Gramling says this passage teaches. So we'll start at verse 1, because the Psalms are wonderful. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away unto your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, yeah, so when we put Psalm 90, verse 12 back into context, it's talking about God being eternal, our lives being temporal. God being eternal, our short lifespans, 70, maybe 80 years, our, our toil and trouble and soon are gone. And consider them in light of God's anger and his wrath, right? Because the wages of sin is death. And so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, it's important to note Psalm 90 verse 12 isn't teaching us anything about, um, you know, make sure that, he, you know, you have a good routine regarding time management and stuff like that in your day. That time management and, and a daily routine have nothing to do with what Psalm 90 is talking about. 
So Troy Grambling has ripped this passage from context and is trying to shoehorn it in to his sermon about time management. Mm, this is twisting God's word. Number. Now, what's he's taught? What he's teaching us is that life is limited, that days are limited, time is limited, which means it's valuable. It's kind of like if you're a collector and you get a painting or a pottery or a pen or whatever it is that you collect. And if you get number 25 out of 250, because there are only 250, it makes what you're collecting incredibly valuable as opposed to if there's an unlimited amount of them created. And, and what the scripture is saying is that we need to number our days. We need to realize that our days are limited. A hundred years from now, none of us will be alive. Our kids won't be alive. Our parents won't be alive. Our president won't be alive. Our teachers won't be alive. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it teaches us this idea to number our days in light of the wrath of God and the forgiveness of sins and God remembering iniquities. That's the context of Psalm 90. A hundred years from now, it will be completely different people. Our time is limited. And because our time is limited, it means that time is incredibly, incredibly valuable. He says, now teach us that time is limited or teach us to number our days so that we may truly live and achieve wisdom. In other words, the scripture is teaching us that until we understand the value of time, we will not truly enjoy the life that we've been given. Nope, that's not what the text says at all. Nope, that's absolutely wrong. It does not say until we learn how to value our time, we will not enjoy the life that we've been given. It does not teach that. You just made that up. And the reason you were able to make it up is because you ripped that verse from context and you didn't actually preach Psalm 90. That we won't truly accomplish that for which we were created. We won't live our destiny and we won't understand our purpose because in order to truly experience those things... We have to understand just how valuable time is. And the writer of Psalms is basically like, God, I need your help with this because I tend to not think about time that way. I don't tend to think about my schedule when it comes to value. I tend to think about what needs to be done. Psalm 39 verse 4 says the same thing. It says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. That it's limited. He says, remind me that my days are numbered. Okay, Psalm 39, verse 4. Huh? All right, well, let's take a look at it in context. Psalm 39. Uh-huh. All right, so we'll start at verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused and fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days, and let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all of mankind stands as a mere, head, uh, as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in toil." Man heaps up wealth and does not know it and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions and do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all of mankind is a mere 
breath. Let me finish the psalm. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Yeah, Psalm 39 isn't about time management. No, not at all. It's not about um, having a good routine or achieving your purpose or finding your destiny or being happy. Not in this life. That's for sure. We continue. How fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is just a breath. And again, over and over in the scripture, verse after verse, you can discover that it says, hey, time is limited. Time is a value. Time is important. What you do every day really does matter. Um, Time is limited. Yes, it, it shows us about the fleeting, shadowy, fast nature of life so that we would repent and be forgiven and trust and live into eternity. That's the point of these passages, not so that we can manage our time properly so that we can achieve a dream destiny. Time is almost magical when you think about it. It's incredible what we can do with time. So how do you know what to write on the calendar? I mean, whether it be on your phone or in a day timer or however it is. How do you know what to write on your calendar? You're going to go take those verses out of context and then teach us what to write in our calendar? Really? You do it. How do you know what to put at 8 a.m. on Monday morning? How do you know what to do this afternoon? I mean, how do you schedule your life? Well, I put this in your outline. Is it in order to do it in an effective way? We have to stop asking the question that the majority of us ask when we're scheduling our time. We have to stop asking the question is what do I need? So this is now a how-to sermon on time management. Oh, man. To get done. Most of us schedule our day based upon what needs to be done. This needs to be done. This person needs to be called. And we have this long list of things that have to be done. And so we schedule our day and we schedule our time based upon what has to be done. And I'm telling you, when we do that, we have a misunderstanding of just how valuable time actually is. So we need to stop asking, what do I need to get done? And we need to start asking this question as we schedule our day is who do I want to become? Who do I want to become? What do I want to become? Where do I want to go? What do I want to accomplish? We need to ask those kind of questions. That's what the scripture says in Ephesians. Paul is talking to Timothy. And Timothy is pastoring the church that Paul had a lot of respect for. The major city of Ephesus. And look at what he says in Ephesians 5.16. He says, remembering the time, or excuse me, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Um, okay, I don't think that Ephesians 5.16 is about time management. And all i got to do is put it back in context. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> yeah, um, I'll start at verse one. I'll start at verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, the therefore is there, there for a reason, okay? Because Paul's just preached the gospel to us, and uh, it, it's everything in light of God's mercy and His forgiveness and salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all good and right, and all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully then on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. <clears throat> so the making the best use of time because the days are evil is specifically mentioned regarding not ha being sexually immoral, uh -huh, not being covetous or a deceiver, talking about the, the difference between being a son of disobedience versus a child of the light, not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, not walking unwisely. This is what verse 16 is talking about, and this is important here. Verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 5 is a sentence fragment. It's not even a full sentence. So he's not properly teaching this verse because he's, at this point, turned it into a sentence when it's not. We continue. The English Standard Version says making the best use of time because the days are evil. And the New Living Translation says the same passage, make the most of every opportunity. Now the word redeem means to purchase. It means to leverage. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, here's what you need to do, Timothy. You need to value time. And you need to understand that time is to be redeemed. Time is to be leveraged. And, and I put it like this in your outline. Will time transform you into who you want to become? Or will time just pass? I mean, that is an incredible question that we all have to answer. Will time, will every minute, every second, every hour, every day, every month, every year, every decade, will it transform you in who to, into who you want to become? Will it transform you to the place you desire to go or will it just pass? In other words, will you redeem the day? Will you redeem the hour? Will you leverage the year? I wrote this when I was... And that's not what Ephesians 5.16 is about at all. About it. It's your daily calendar that has determined who you presently are. My daily calendar has determined who I am? Oh, man. Nowhere in the Bible is this taught. This is miserable. You, I put the quote in your outline. You will never change your life until you change something that you do daily. 
This determines who you are. This determines... He's pointing to a day calendar. ...the success you will experience. And you won't change. See, we tend to kind of be like, hey, God, I need you to zap my finances. I need you to zap my marriage. I need you to... Without changing what we do on a daily basis. And until we change what we do on a daily basis, we will not become who we desire to be. It's that daily scheduling. It's understanding the value of every hour. Like I said, in your outline, it says you will never change your life until you change something that you do daily. How many of you here were 20 years or older in the year 2000? Raise your hand. 20 years or older in the year 2000. Go ahead, raise it up. 20 years or older. Remember the year 2000, Y2K? I mean, those of you who are not old enough to remember, I mean, we thought the world was going to fall apart because that's what they told us, didn't they? They told us computers weren't going to work. The banking system was going to go down. ATMs were going to be empty. There were people living in their basements with months of food and their guns loaded as we watched one part of the world by another, you know, strike 12. It's been 13 years since the year 2000. And this is my question for you is if you were to go back and ask yourself in the year 2000, where do you want to be? Are you where you thought you would be? Are you who you thought you would be? Is your relationships where you thought they would be? Are your finances where you thought they would be? Because that time has passed. And had you and I leveraged that time to become who we wanted to. In other words, we wanted our relationships to be better, but we never changed what we did on a daily basis. If you'd ask us in 2000, we would have wanted to have a, a better place. I've heard this almost identical speech from a Franklin Covey time management course. Did he plagiarize this from Franklin Covey? Financially, but we didn't change anything we did on a daily basis. Those, those hours and those minutes, those years, they are gone. But had you leveraged them, they're almost magical. Had you and I changed what we did on a daily basis, where we would be today is a completely different place. Maybe not go back 13 years. Maybe just go back to 2008, just five years ago. Sadly, some of us in 2008 were in a dead-end job. And in 2013, you're still at that job. Because you never changed what you did on a daily basis. Some of us in 2008 hated the job that we had. We're disappointed about the relationships we were in. And yet, five years later, time has just passed. But you have not changed. Your fears are the same. Your stress is the same. That you and I have to make a decision. We will either leverage that time and we will allow time. Now notice, this is all law. The thing you got to do. You got to do. You got to do. You want to change who you are? You got to schedule it, man. Get busy, get to work. And then you're thinking, well, if I haven't done this, I mean, is God mad at me because I haven't done this? No gospel, none whatsoever. All the verses out of context made to say something they don't say. And now all of this stuff that you got to do, get busy becoming the person you want to be. You got to schedule it and get busy. You know, you got to keep a day planner and, and schedule the person you want to become work for us to transform us into who we desire to become or time will just kind of tick on by and it's all based upon what you do 
with your daily schedule. It's all based upon what you do with your time. This week is week 44 in 2013. There are eight weeks left in this year. In January, how has your life changed since January? How are you different? How have you leveraged? How have you redeemed those 44 weeks? Do you look different? Do you feel different? Are your relationships different? Or did you just hope in January that you would be in better chance, uh, shape, but you never... So this is uh, week, what, 44? Um, did you follow through on your New Year's resolutions at the beginning of this year? If not, I mean, you haven't redeemed your time. So is God mad at me if I haven't done that? What you did. Or am I supposed to say, oh, well, you know, I followed through on my New Year's resolution. I lost 50 pounds this year. Oh, see, I scheduled the change of the, you know, that I wanted. So, so that means me and God are okay, right? Daily basis. You just hope that you'd have more money in the bank, but you didn't change what you did on a daily basis. You just hope that you'd have a better job, but you haven't done anything on a daily. I mean, did that time just pass? Next week will be week 45. And you're still waiting for something out there to happen to you that will somehow help you become who you desire to be. I think God is screaming to us from the pages of Scripture that if we truly want to transform, the secret is time. For example, really, you think God is screaming that from Scripture? If you really want to transform, the secret is time. If that was what God was screaming from Scripture, why doesn't God's Word actually say that from a passage that says it in context? See, now you're just making stuff up and sticking it on God. That's called blasphemy. Well, how many of you heard of John Grisham? You ever heard of John Grisham? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about, the, write, the writer? He was actually born where Steph and I grew up. He was born in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He was an attorney. Didn't like his job, according to his own words. He wanted to be a writer. Well, he discovered that if he truly wanted... Now, John Grisham is not found in Scripture. I don't even know if he's a Christian. To be a writer, he needed to do what most writers do. Write. But he didn't have any time. He was a busy attorney. And so he determined that he was going to get up earlier. And so if you read his account of his life, he, would, he determined that if he was going to be a writer, he was going to get up every day at 5 a.m. He was going to shower. His office at that time, his law office, was about five minutes away. And by 5.30 a.m. every day, he wanted to be in his office with his first cup of coffee, his legal pad, and his pen. So that at 5.30 on the dot, he could write the first word. And he wrote on a calendar, okay, because the key to transformation is a commitment to what you write on a calendar. He committed that every day he'd write one page. Every day. It's on the calendar. I'm going to do it up at 5, writing at 5.30. And he said some days it would take 20 minutes and some days it would take an hour. Today, he's written 27 novels. As of 2008, which was five years ago, he had sold 250 million copies of his book. So many of us look at a life like that and we think... When so does, so he's being held up here. That's, he's Christ-like then, right? Because isn't you know a sanctification sermon to make us more Christ-like? So it's, like, it's Christ-like to get up and write a novel every day. I don't think so going to happen to me and we're waiting God to zap us but we never put anything on the calendar and so as a result the transformation never happens God doesn't zap you with success 
God doesn't out of nowhere. No, no, it is the result of a commitment to a daily habit. I know in my own life, as I was thinking about this and challenging myself, because I'll be honest with you. I told you last week, man, I'm a piddler. And if I'm not careful, I, I won't live life with the intentionality that I need to. And when I was from sixth grade to 12th grade, between the hours of three and five, I did the same thing from sixth grade to 12th grade as I played basketball. Started actually a little bit late. A lot of kids start a lot earlier than, than sixth grade. During the summer, I'd be at the community center. And during the school year, I'd be, of course, practicing basketball at the school. But because I kept that commitment to a calendar, basketball paid for my college. Basketball provided an opportunity for me to travel the world, an opportunity to actually play in Europe. It it was because of... Who's he preaching about? Himself. He hasn't preached anything about Christ at all. A commitment to a calendar that transformed me into who I desired to become. Same is true for you. Is that if you truly want to succeed, if you truly want to do life with a sense of peace and a sense of direction, it's what you do on a daily basis. Maybe you remember the story of Donnie Henderson. We shared it with you just a few weeks ago. But I want you to hear his story again in the context of what we're talking about. See if you hear it just a little bit differently. Let's, let's watch. After high school, or even at the end of high school, when I had become wrapped up in drugs and alcohol and partying and girls, and I I was a very prominent athlete here locally and and, and was being recognized and thought I had it made. Uh, I had been married for a few months out of of college, and um, she left me. Then I got married again looking for love, someone to love me. And I decided that drugs were more important. She and I had engaged in a lifestyle of, of lust and, and, and um, parties that were improper. Um, then I ran from that. So I got married a third time, which was crazy. Um, began partying constantly again. I stole everything from my family or anything that they gave me and put it in a pipe. And I was 46 years old, never really been sick. Had some football and baseball and basketball injuries, but jumped off roofs, invincible. And I was having a heart attack. I thought, I'm going to die before I'm 50. If I'm lucky to make it to 50. Uh, saw some television stuff and watched a bunch of it right right behind Joel Osteen, and it, it got my attention. Um, my family and I decided to come to an Easter service, then a Christmas service. My daughter really wanted to come. And the pastor, Troy, really just preaches the word, the Bible. Uh, no, actually, he doesn't. He does not preach the Bible. He does not preach the word. He twists God's word. I have yet to hear him rightly handle a single text. I do remember that the pastor repelled from the from the ceiling and I felt his genuineness through his words. 
um, the Spirit of God, you can't deny at times. I can't really explain it. Yeah, I can deny it on Troy Grambling because if the Spirit of God were on him, the Spirit of God would be, well, convicting him of his Bible twisting. But I can tell you that he wrapped his arms around me sitting in the very back that day there and said, you'll be back, you know, welcome home. And the reason we really started going is because the first of the year, Pastor Troy challenged people to go for three months. He challenged, he said, give it 90 days and it'll change your life. Now I'm on the second 90 days and involved more, including the last baptism. My life is changing and I'm just... I, I can't not smile about it. It's the best drug I've ever had. And we heard nothing from him about Jesus. We heard nothing about him about repenting of his sin. Didn't hear anything about him being forgiven by Christ's shed blood on the cross. We just heard a testimonial. I, 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 I've seen these testimonials um, regarding The Biggest Loser, people who've had their life changed you know, on a television game show, reality-based game show. Yeah, they've they've lost a ton of weight. Their lives have changed. And they've scheduled the life change. Didn't hear anything about Jesus. Yeah. Now, another important point. Because we didn't hear anything about Jesus, who got the credit for that man's life change? Troy Gramling, not Jesus. Now, did you catch that? He said his life is changing. He said he's got more joy than he's ever had. And you know why? Because he made a commitment on a calendar that said, I'm going to be there this weekend and this weekend and this weekend. And that commitment on that calendar has radically changed his life. Time, that same time could have passed. Not Jesus, not God, the Holy Spirit, not repenting, not faith in Christ, a commitment to a calendar. He could have come every other weekend. He could have come once a month. He could have made a different kind of decision. And he'd have a different kind of outcome. Time is such a precious thing. It's almost magical in the way it can transform us into who we desire to be and how it can bring about the dreams that we've longed for. Time is magical, not God miraculous. Notice the distinction. For such a long time. So let me show you how this works. And again, my goal is just to get you to think a little bit this week, to do a little bit of homework and wrestle with this some. When it comes to scheduling time, when you think about, do I desire to experience peace and confidence, security, favor, blessing? Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things. What are all these things? Well, if you read it in the context... Okay, Matthew 6.33, he's taking it out of context. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jeremiah prophesies regarding Jesus Christ that he will be called, that we will say of him, call him God is our righteousness. Not our own. His righteousness, the righteousness that is by faith, the righteousness that is given as a gift, the righteousness of Christ that covers us. That's what Matthew 6.33 is about. If you read the whole passage of Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about peace, confidence, security, favor, and blessing. 
He says, I'm going to give you the favor, the, the, the resources, the blessing, the security that you're looking for if you'll put me first. Again, totally missing the whole point. And by, how to get that? By ripping it from context. Then all these things will be given to you too. Now, so if we're going to do or schedule our day as if God were going to schedule, if we're going to put him first, then some things that we want to make sure we put in our calendar so that we can become who we desire, security, peace. Well, it's just we can worship. Just being committed. Some of us are still. So first thing on your calendar, you know, make sure you put down weekend worship. Otherwise, you know, God can't bless you. And, you know, flipping a coin every week, trying to decide whether we're going to be here or not. It depends on what you did the night before. Maybe it depends on what music they're doing or who's teaching or, or where you, and, and, and as a result, I just, just understand you can do, of course, whatever you desire to do, but just understand that what you do and the commitment that you make is taking you somewhere. And there, yeah, see Matthew six thirty three really teaches you. Number one, when you're sitting down and working out your daily calendar, your weekly calendar, make sure you schedule in going to church. It's not what it's saying at all. It'll be 52 weeks in 2014, and it will either transform you or you will just have lived 52 weeks. But the Bible's clear on this one, that if you desire to have peace, if you desire to have contentment, if you desire to experience favor and blessing, then you will put God first each week. This is a favor and contentment via works, not salvation by grace. This is all law, no gospel, totally 100% law. And Matthew 6.33 actually is a gospel text, not a law text. And gather with the community and worship. Hebrews says to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The other thing I would say is what I put in your outline is like the daily 15. In other words, when you think about your day, is that you find those 15 minutes, you know, to, to, to hang or spend uh, with God. To read his word. To, to journal or to pray. It's not about how long. It's about how consistent. And if you will do that, it will transform you and who you desire to be. It... Now, I'm not knocking daily devotions. I'm a firm believer in them. Avail myself of them daily. If you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know I send out a resource daily called the uh, Scripture Catechesis and Prayer. And uh, it takes you through the entire Bible in a year. Um, I'm all for this. But notice, this is what he's doing. This is a means to an end. Oh, you got to do this so then God will bless you. Hey, all law, no gospel. Bring security into your life, no matter what's going on in the world. It will bring a sense of peace, even when things around you are going crazy. It will bring blessing when everyone else is experiencing challenge and difficult. But you have to put it into your calendar and then keep that commitment. Another thing I put in your outline is like financial peace. Some of us have never experienced that in our lives. From the time you left your home, you've been worried about money. Worried about how you're going to pay for college. Worried about how you're going to pay the mortgage. Worried about how you're going to have resources. To, you're just always worried about money. And you've always been worried about money. You can't remember a time in your life where you weren't concerned, stressed about the finances. Our desire, as always, is to help you in that area. And one of the things that we do here is what we call Financial Peace University. It's basically just a class about how to deal with money. It's about how to save. It's about how to budget. Um, it's about how to get out of debt. 
It's about how to deal with uh, investing and income tax. I mean, it's just how to handle your money. We're in the second week. It's six weeks long. It's two hours long on Saturdays from 10 to noon. Now, those six weeks will pass. For some folks, we've heard incredible stories because we've been doing this for years. We hear incredible stories about how they got out of debt and how they went from always being worried about money to literally having a sense of peace when it comes to their finances. To not going to bed every night dreading the end of the month or hoping that somehow, somewhere, something magical will happen that will take care of them. Why? Because they made a commitment. Six weeks, two hours. We're going to keep that. And as a result, that two hours committed to on a calendar has transformed who many of us are. It's important. Maybe it's healthy relationships. And you think, man, that's something I desire. I want to become that. You know, I want to know that. And again, there's many things you could do, but I just put down a couple. One is if you're here and you're married, is this a date night? It's continuing to date after you say, I do. And the more stressful your life, the more important it is that there is a time written on the calendar where you say, I, man, I've got a date. Whether it's 10 a.m. or whether it's 7 p.m., it's saying, I'm going to hang with my wife. Sadly, the more stressful our lives, the less likely we are to write it on our calendars and keep that commitment. The more stressful your life, the more important it is for you and your spouse to have times to decompress together. It's like when you have a child. Children are awesome, but children are quite stressful. Especially when they're... Again, none of this is Christian sanctification. He's not actually... He hasn't handled the biblical text correctly yet. I mean, this is great advice. But that's all it is. This is not a biblical teaching. Big difference between those two concepts, by the way. Firstborn, they cry a lot, they poop a lot, and that's about what they do. Right? That's stressful. And then it's, it's sad that many times that's when the mom and the dad are less likely to put it on their calendar. And as a result, their marriage transforms into something they do not desire. So if you want a healthy relationship, I can tell you how every single one of us can have that. As you put that on your calendar and daily, you keep it. The the other thing I wrote down is just vacations, breaks, staycation, whatever you want to call it. Let's just say, I'm going to give time to my relationships is what I'm saying. For me, all of our lives are different. For Steph and I, we have seasons of, you know, true uh, just busyness. Um, And so what we do is make sure that for our kids to turn out to be happy adults, and we have to give them time. So we have to put those seasons on that calendar so that we can spend time with them. It's Almost magical, isn't it? Because the time's going to pass. It's just how will it transform you? Physical activity. I mean, physical healthiness. Or if you want to be physically healthy, what do you do? You got to put exercise on that calendar somewhere. I didn't say you had to, that you wanted to do it, you know, or you looked forward to do it. I'm just saying, if you'll put it on the calendar, guess what? You'll be transformed. I mean, it's that simple. It's magical. In three months. You will be a different person. And here's my question to you. The three months are going to pass. They are going to pass. Actually, it takes a lot longer than that if you've put on quite a bit of weight like I did. I've lost 50 pounds this year. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I guess I don't need to. I don't need this, right? I mean, this. I'm not learning anything about Christ. I'm not hearing anything about God's word. Not in context. I'm being browbeaten about making sure to have a day planner and schedule things in it and stuff like that. This is pretty much the tyranny of the uh, of the day book, right? And I have I sinned if I haven't re- scheduled it on a calendar, or am I righteous because I did and I accomplished a goal and I transformed myself over the course of the year and lost fifty pounds? My goal was one pound a week. I lost a little tiny bit more than that. This is ridiculous. And you will either be transformed into who you want to be, or you'll look back and you'll say, man, where to go? Where'd time go? Because I'm the same. I'm the same. If it comes to work, you want to enjoy your work. There's a way in which you can do that is you can put on that calendar and keep a commitment of maybe it's training or maybe it's going to school. I'm saying, man, I'm going to change who I am. I really believe that Steph and I have had the opportunity we have at Potential Church is because when we were in Arkansas a long time ago, we wanted to grow and we would see a conference that was going to be somewhere on some aspect of leadership. And so we'd circle that day and we'd say, you know what? We don't really have the money, but we're going to go and we're going to keep that. And you know what? There's another opportunity here and we're going to keep that. And sometimes we would drive all night because we really didn't have the money to stay in a hotel. And we'd go to the conference and, and we'd go back home. We'd eat the peanut butter and jelly and the rainbow noodles and all of those different. But can I tell you, those daily commitments open the door to opportunity. Don't year after year hate the job you have. Sign up for a night class. Go to some kind of training. Don't wait for somebody else to make you do something you don't want. No. Because the time's going to pass. In 2014, are you going to be sitting right there still hating the job you have? Still frustrated that you're not uh, respected or that you're not getting the promotion or that you don't have the, the income? Do something about it. In your daily schedule. Let's talk about time. Again, I'm just trying to give you some things to think about. I think this has the capacity, maybe it'd be the most spiritual teaching we do all year long, is if we can truly understand and honor time. This is a spiritual teaching. No, it's not. Again, you can get better than this at like Franklin Covey. You know, their time management classes, they're, they're, they're awesome. That's the system I learned, you know, for time management. It's amazing. It's great. And they do such a better job and don't even put on the pretense that they're somehow teaching you something spiritual. It's so easy not to, isn't it? Just let minutes, seconds, hours, days, months, years go by. But if we really want to honor time, look what it says in Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Four, Colossians 4, 5, out of context again. Colossians 4, 5 is not about time management. James says, how do you know what your life is going to be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. He says, if you don't see how valuable time is, if you don't see how valuable every second is, then you won't become who you were created to be. It's all- Yeah, no, James doesn't say that. When you and I begin to understand the potential in every minute, do we begin to transform? 
Steph and I learned this from a very uh, young, you know, when we were just in our early 20s and we were married. And we volunteered to be, to work with the students at Finch Baptist Church. There were 10 of them. Now we moved to Marmaduke, Arkansas, which is about 20 miles from Finch uh, or Walcott, Arkansas, quite a ways in a rural community. And the way they would do church is they would have Sunday school and then church. And for Sunday school, everybody would gather together and then they would separate into their classes. And we would teach the students, those 10 kids. Well, Stephanie and I were always like, we're always like, I told you I'm a peddler. And, and um, we would sneak in while they were always gathered together before they came to the Sunday school class, which is what we taught for the students. And so we'd kind of sneak into the room and we'd sit there like we were, had been there the whole time waiting for them to get there. You know? And God just kind of began to really nudge my heart about the value of time and how important it was. And Steph and I talked about it and we just decided, you know what, we're going to be on time. We're going to adjust our schedule so that we can leave on time and get there on time. And when we did... Preaching about himself again, not Jesus. I can't tell you the number of doors that had opened up and the transformation that began to happen. Just because... Could a Muslim imam preach this? Yep. Could a Jewish rabbi preach this? Yep. Could a Roman Catholic monk preach this? Yep. Hmm. What makes this Christian? Answer, nothing in this sermon makes it Christian. This is not a Christian sermon. Begin to understand and value time. So let me give you a few thoughts about time or ways in which you can honor time and how honoring time respects the people that we do life with. For example, I honor my parents by respecting curfew. By respecting that time. It's so easy for the skin to say, well, it's just five minutes, mom. What's the big deal? The traffic was bad. Do you want me to drive 100 miles an hour and kill myself, mom? Right? The skin naturally does those things. And yet, we don't realize sometimes that when we are not honoring that curfew, that we are not only disrespecting our parents, is that we are communicating that we don't understand the the value of time, and therefore, we are positioning ourselves to not be trusted with what God has for us in the future. Time is important to him. And from a young age, it is important that you and I understand its value. The second thing I gave you is that I honor my employer by being on time. All of us here who are employed have a time in which you are to be at work. And the way in which you honor your employer and communicate that you understand the value of time to our, our father, our heavenly father, is by being on time. Not five minutes late, not 20 minutes late, not, but being... Okay, think about something here. As much of a waste of time as this sermon is, there's something more dangerous than even the Bible twisting. Troy Grambling spends a lot of money marketing to people who are not Christians or don't go to church and tries to get them to come into church. Have they been confronted with their sins? Have they been told what Christ has done for them on the cross? Have they learned anything about what God's will really is for them? Do they understand what holiness is? Righteousness, faith, hope, love, peace, patience, any of that. They haven't learned any of it. They've heard a sermon about time management. And they're going to go away and thinking, wow, I had no idea if I used a day planner, I'd be more Christian. But are you? I know many pagans rank pagans 
who are very good and meticulous about keeping a day planner and scheduling things for themselves and not getting off of their schedule. And they're the rankest people on the planet. There's nothing Christian about them. We continue. On time. And when you go to lunch, you don't come back a little 15 minutes later than you're supposed to. You don't leave 10 minutes before it's leaving time. Why? Because you understand the value of time. And you understand that by doing those things, you are dishonoring and disrespecting the employer in which God has put over you to prepare you for the promise he has for you. And when you and I dishonor time, we are communicating to God that we are unprepared and we are not ready yet for the promotion or the blessing that he has promised us. Yeah, see, if you, if you don't practice good time management, well, then you can't get the blessing and the dream destiny that God has for you. Hmm. Not one passage of Scripture even teaches this. Not one. Time is of value to God. Wouldn't it be awesome if people were like, man, I'm telling you what, you got to hire some folks down there at Potential Church. Because they're always on time. They work hard. They don't leave early. Wouldn't it just be cool if the world recognized that in us as Christ followers? But sadly, there's no difference between us and the world. We tend to show up whenever we want to, take as many long lunches as we can, and we are communicating that we just don't understand the value of time. The the last one I would give to you is that we honor Jesus by being on time and prepared to worship. Now, I know that's quite touchy since, and this is what I wrote in my journal, is that it's important for us to understand that we gather here at Potential Church to honor Jesus. And when we are late or when we leave early, it reveals a misunderstanding of who we're honoring. See, we want to be encouraged when we gather together, but we don't gather to encourage one another. We gather to honor the one who gave his life for us. We gather to respect or to honor him. And when we're late... Or when we leave early, maybe unknowingly, what we're communicating is disrespect. It's kind of like if I invited you to a surprise party for Steph to honor her for for her ministry. Well, if you show up 30 minutes late to a surprise party, you have disrespected the very one we desire to honor. Well, when we gather to worship and we show up at whatever time without meaning to, We dishonor the very one we have come to honor. And we're communicating far more, I think, than we really realize that we're communicating. See, I don't want any of us to be ignorant about the fact that we are sometimes communicating to God that because we don't understand the value of time, we are not yet ready or prepared for the blessing that he's promised for us. Like, God, when is the blessing going to come? When's the favor? When's the peace? When's the promotion? And God is when you saying when you position yourselves, when you understand the value of time, because I'm going to put into your hands the lives of other people. That's what promotion is what? It's more people that you have influence on. And God's not going to give influence to those who don't understand the value of the most limited resource you and I have as human beings. It's time. Now, if you've been at Potential Church very long at all, you know, that it is very rare that we do not start on time. There are times when people are like, oh man, the parking lot's crowded or the traffic is horrible. You want to just start a few minutes late. And I'm always like, no, we're going to start on time. It says in the program what time we have church and we want to start on time. And if you've ever been to one of our book studies, we start on time and we end on time. You know, if we don't want you to wonder whether or not you're going to get to your place of employment 
says it starts at 7 and ends at 8. It'll start at 7 and it'll end at 8. Now, some of you may be asking, well, what about on the weekend? When does it end? Well, we don't print an ending time when it comes to our weekend services. So it will end whenever it ends. All right. I put in your outline that when we honor time, we become a person of honor. The scripture says in John 10, 10, that Jesus came to give us full, life full, abundantly. But the enemy comes to siphon that off. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So what we do with our time is very, very important. What I do, and this is what we'll finish with, is what I do is determined by what needs to be done. Some of us do that. Some of us determine what we do by what needs to be done. You will make your schedule based on what needs to be done. It's a list. But we often do that without giving any thought to who we want to become or what we desire to experience. What I do for some of us is determined by the flow. That's the one I can fall in if I'm not careful. Emotion. I don't want to limit myself because there might be something better that comes along. I just want to kind of flow into the day. Just go, whatever. And the problem with that is that if you just do what you feel like doing, you're not going to become the person you desire to be. I experienced that in my own life in that um, while I had worked out my whole life, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, I just didn't feel like working out. It cost me 30 pounds. Additional 30. I, I transformed And it's something I'm not sure I want to be. Sometimes what we do is determined by other people. It's a result of fear. You know why some of us don't schedule according to who we want to become? Because we know that what we put on the calendar is going to make somebody else angry. We know it's going to make somebody else mad. Because every time you prioritize something as one in that same... Cue sappy music. The sappy music is an emotional manipulation technique to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now getting ready to really work hard on somebody to make them commit to something. In this particular case, commit to proper time management. In action, you're prioritizing something else as two or three or four. And there's always relational fallout as a result of that. But how are you going to become who you desire to be and who God created you to be if you schedule your day out of fear and how others are going to respond? Now, here's the thing. What God wants to make us into requires death and resurrection. That's right. God is not in the transforming your sinful flesh business. He's in the killing your sinful flesh business. And our hope is in the resurrection on the day when there is no more sin. When we are raised to newness of life and we will be raised like Christ. What he's preaching is is false. Because the way to get to where we are supposed to be is ultimately going to come by death and resurrection. Not good time management. Good time management is powerless in curbing the sinful nature, utterly powerless. And you're not more holy if you keep a time planner. Nope. Now, it may, keeping a time planner is really a good idea. It doesn't have anything to do with Christian sanctification or what it is that Christ is making us into. 
If you were to look at my phone or my iPad, there's this little message that comes up. I put it on my to-do list a few years ago. It says, write a book. It comes up every day and it haunts me because I haven't written that book. And the reason I haven't written that book is so many times is that my day gets filled with people that I'm afraid to disappoint. And so the time has passed, but the book hasn't been written. You've got to understand that there is a cost to how you schedule your day. And you don't want to schedule your day based on some list or how you feel or even fear. But you want to determine what you do every day by who you desire to become, by purpose. So that's your homework. Spend some time this week thinking about how you schedule your day. And ask yourself, week 45, will it just pass or will I be transformed? How about week 45, will I repent and be forgiven for all the weeks that I've squandered in this fleeting life, serving myself, my sinful flesh, the devil, and the dominion of darkness? rather than repenting and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and trusting in Christ my Savior who bled and died for every second of every day that ticked off that I did not love God with all of my whole heart. <laughs> it was completely Christless, crossless, vapid. It, that, that had nothing to do with what Scripture says. Yet, wow, they're going to have people whose lives are transformed. I'm sure they'll have a testimonial 90 days from now, from somebody who said, oh, I took Pastor Troy's challenge. And I, for 90 days, I, I went out and bought a day planner. And I scheduled my life. And now I'm becoming the person that I think God wants me to be. Without any reference to what it is that God wants us to be. No concept of holiness. No concept of obedience to God. It's because, of course, the person God wants me to be is thin, successful, God wants me to be, to, you know, have a really satisfied life, to have a purpose and all that kind of, that's, that's what God wants, because that's what I want. Yeah, this kind of preaching has confused the American dream for Christian sanctification. Those are two completely different things, and in many ways are antithetical towards each other. Sad, isn't it? What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>